Join me in turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And we are moving to a conclusion in Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. This was a letter written in the mid to late 50s AD, written by Paul the Apostle. And he wrote to the Roman Christians, enlisting their partnership in taking the gospel to somewhere new, to an unreached place, to an unreached peoples. As Christ died and was raised in the city of Jerusalem, naturally this wonderful news that Christ came to die on the cross for sinners was spreading. Right? The news that God's salvation was open to all who turn from their sins and believe on him was spreading. It spread from Jerusalem and now was going, even spreading. Paul says in our passage today, he hoped to take the gospel to Spain. In our previous passage in Romans chapter 15 earlier there, <clears throat> we saw that Paul was a man on a God-given mission to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles or non-Jews. If you look there in 1519, we see that Paul had preached the gospel from the general area of Jerusalem all the way north and then west to modern-day Albania. And there in verse 20, go ahead and look there. He makes it clear he wants to preach the gospel where Christ had not yet been preached. Paul is a man on a mission, a man on a mission to see God glorified to the ends of the earth. And in today's passage, we see that when Christians share the same heart, when Christians share the same heart, the mission is pushed forward. When Christians share the same heart, the mission is pushed forward. And Paul writes calling his readers to share in his mission, really by sharing his same heart. <clears throat> Makes us here wonder today if we actually share in this same mission and same heart that Paul himself had had, that God himself called him, as God called him, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you look there, our passage today is in 15.22, and then we're going to go all the way to 16.16. And as we go along in the sermon, I'll go ahead and read a certain section there, which brings us to actually point number one. And Paul here asks Christians that they have a heart of sacrifice, a heart of sacrifice. We're going to look at the same heart that Paul wants his readers to have, really that Paul wants us to have, even though we carry on this wonderful gospel 2,000 years later, we should be asking what our heart is towards this great mission. So he asks if the Christ, he wants the Christians to share the same heart of sacrifice. Point number one, the same heart of sacrifice. Go ahead and look there at 22 to 29. It says there, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. If you pause for a moment there, the reason why he says this is the reason, the reason it took him so long to get to the, to the Roman Christians was what he said earlier, right? He'd been preaching the gospel all over the place. He's been starting churches all over the place. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. <clears throat> Actually, we'll go ahead and... Uh, pause right there for a moment. He opens this section explaining, once again, why he was unable to visit the churches in Rome. Finally, the time had come. There was no more work in that area. 
be done. Now, he's not saying that, the, that everybody, every single person in that general area had heard the gospel. He's saying that he had planted churches in all the major cities, and then as was his strategy, and then was sending other people to minister to the smaller areas. In that sense, there was no longer any room in those regions. But given his work had moved along, he says there in 24, he had finally hoped to go there <clears throat> to be helped on my journey to Spain by you. He's wanting their partnership. He intends fully to stop in Rome to be helped on his journey. Now, this is not help in general. This is help specifically in relation to his service to Jesus Christ. And that's actually what the term um, in the New Testament means. This phrase is used on multiple occasions to refer to Christians helping one another out in relation to specifically the Christian mission. So he says, it's my desire to be helped there by you. He's saying, I hope that we would be partnering together, that you guys would help me reach Spain. So he's looking there for partnership. Being desirous that Rome would be his base for his Spanish mission, Paul wanted the Roman Christians, once again, to partner with him. You can think financially, as other churches had done previously. Uh, We're going to read how he wants the churches to partner with him in prayer, and then perhaps even by sending people along to go with him on his mission. Now, I imagine that any church in the Roman church's position would be excited to help. They are on the cutting edge of Christian missions, and they now have the opportunity to support Paul, and together, right, they're working together, bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. They have the opportunity to share in this Christian message, fulfilling the Christian mission. Now, when I say Christian missions, if you're visiting with us, you you maybe heard this idea of Christian missions. I think some people tend to think this idea of Christian missions is just the Christian commitment to spread the teachings of the Bible as if the plan to spread the gospel to all nations comes from us as Christians, right? It's something that we create. But this isn't first and foremost our plan that is man's plan. It is God's plan. This is not, this plan of Christian missions is take the gospel to the ends of the earth, you know, to be a missionary and such and such is God's plan himself. He is the one who sent Christ to save us from our sins, right? If you just think about the, uh, the plot points of the gospel, you see that this is the case. God created man to be in a relationship with him, but man had rebelled against their maker. And they had earned for themselves just condemnation, judgment even in hell, the Bible says. As Romans says, that we all stand under condemnation because we had rejected God and rebelled against Him. Right? God knew all that. So in His great love, He, he sends His Son, His eternal Son, to take on flesh. God Himself is pursuing us in Christ. Jesus comes, He takes on flesh, He lives a perfect life we should have. And then climactically on the cross, He dies for the wrath that we ourselves deserved, the punishment that was upon us, he himself takes because he loves us. And so God's wrath is satisfied. Three days later, he, is, he rises from the dead, showing that payment has been made in full. <clears throat> and now all those who call upon him will be saved, as it says in the book of Romans, right? That is good news. The fact that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose again, and now he, is, he saves all that turns from their sins and trust in Him. That's the wonderful news that God Himself wants His people to share. This is not just a man-driven mission. This is God Himself's. This is God's mission for His people. 
Right? So I imagine that they would be excited to think about this, to think about how Paul could be bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth and they get to help in that. So while, in fact, Christians are to plan, right? We are planning, for example, a mission trip in July. We are just trying to be faithful to God's command to take the best news, the gospel, all around the world. It is the Christian mission and the command itself has come from Christ. But thinking back to Christians helping, right? Paul obviously wants the Christians to partner with him. Thinking back to the Christians helping him, they are called to be stewards of the resources God himself had given them. They are called to a heart of sacrifice. Now, with our 21st century modern ears, you know, when we hear this idea of sacrifice, it can be a little bit confusing. Sacrifice implies that we give up something that we rightly own, right? Nature of sacrifice, as many people think about it. In a human sense, we understand this. If we work for a wage, for example, we receive it, and that is our own. But from God's perspective, you know, thinking specifically about um, stewardship and finances, right, because that's how he wants them to help, at least in part. From God's perspective, though, the money that we all have is God's money. It is God's money. I was talking with uh, one brother here in the church last week, and knowing that it is all God's money, you can think about all the money that we have here, you know, and sometimes we have more, sometimes we have less. That's God just shuffling around his own money to see that his will would be accomplished. And when he desires that other people do some really good things, he just shuffles it around. He just sort of rearranged it so that his people at the right time in that particular location to fulfill a specific task is able to do that. It's, it's all God's money. And we are to put his money behind his cause. We are to put his money behind his cause of bringing Christ to the ends of the earth. That's what Christians are to do. And here the Roman Christians have the opportunity to put God's resources behind God's plan and mission for the spread of the gospel and the building up of his church. I mean, this is exactly what Paul commends other churches to do there in verses 25 and 29. Um, and he's talking about right, material stuff. He's talking about finances. Uh, before we get to that passage right there, we're in like the end of the book of Romans. I mean, he's dealing with really particular stuff. But here we should understand this to be not only history, but fascinating history. We stand on the shoulders of these particular Christians. So what we see them doing in history almost 2,000 years ago, that alone, hopefully, I, ho- I hope that you are being fascinated by the details here of what exactly is going on, as they too are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and look at 25 to 29, right? He's talking about how he's going to go there. He wants to be helped on his journey there. But in verse 25, he says, I can't get there yet. He says, at present, however... I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. But here he is just, he's commending these Christians in Macedonia and in Achaia for their generous sacrificial giving. 
He's just saying he's going to bring financial aid to the church at Jerusalem in that section there. You notice how Paul describes them, those churches, those people, as they gave two times there in 26 and 27. Just go ahead and find it. How does Paul describe them in their giving? And I think he's holding them out because he wants the Romans to do the same type of giving, right? So implication, application for us, right? We should be pursuing the same type of giving there. How does he describe them? 26 and 27. Two times he says that they were pleased. That is, they were delighted to contribute towards the needs of the Jerusalem church, particularly the, the poor there in Jerusalem. And, you know, it's fascinating, you know, thinking again about this history, right? These are our brothers and sisters, even though they existed a long time ago. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here he actually elaborates on the Macedonians and their giving. Again, I think he's encouraging we, by extension, application, are encouraged to give in the same way. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 5. Now, here, we're just sort of double-clicking on this, this, this heart that is pleased to give, pleased to offer up. So if you know that your heart is a little stingy for whatever reason, you want to hold your money, that is God's money, close to your own heart, then, you know, we are helped here. He says there, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a, now get this, severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you've ever felt like you've been in a severe test of affliction financially, Right? Typically, people aren't going through an abundance of joy. If you've ever felt that you've, you've gone through some sort of extreme poverty, you're, not, you're generally speaking, you know, if you're tempted to rely on wealth, you know, you're not going to be overflowing in a wealth of generosity towards other people. This, this, here, this generosity and heart of sacrifice is wrought by God himself. Some of you guys know what it's like to be in extreme poverty. Or to feel like it at least, and you want to be stingy with your money, but not these people. They're moved. They're moved towards, towards overflowing in a wealth of generosity on their part. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. Right? They're giving to Paul. Paul's going to take it to Jerusalem. And they, that, not only that, though, but they gave beyond their means of their own accord begging us. How did they give, right? How did they give, verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They're basically offering their whole entire selves, not only to God, but to Paul the Apostle as he's going around trying to strengthen the body of Jesus Christ there in that time and they did that begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints there in jerusalem you see how how this is a christ focused help this is a christ focused help this is putting god's money towards the building up of god's church it's clear that their christian hearts wanted to strengthen other christians hearts and so they were moved to give sacrificially they were having really a partnership not only with money but a partnership in heart, partnership for Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that in Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, the very words used in, to describe this giving here, this offering, uh, this financial help, this phrase there in the Greek language of the, the individual words for this offering 
is phrased in a, in a, using words of fellowship. That is actually the Greek word there. He's going to bring financial help, but the word itself, I guess one could translate as something like a fellowship gift. Because they share, right? It's the very nature of sharing. They share the same heart. They share the same purpose. And so money is just flowing from one into the hands of the other, regardless of financial well-being or not. This here is gospel partnership in putting God's money behind God's plan to build His church. As God is on the move to save, as He is on the move saving all who call upon His name, whether Jew or Gentile, He is building His church. And those Christians there that Paul's talking about from Macedonia and Achaia, right, those are Gentile lands. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we just, you, you look over here in chapter 15, it's all, and just look at verse uh, you know, 9, for example. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. The point there is that the Gentiles are coming into the people of God. And here you have the Gentiles giving up their finances, even in extreme poverty, helping the Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians. And so they, you have this beautiful language there. There in 27, for they were pleased to do it. This is 15, 27. They were pleased to offer up this stuff, their finances. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in, that is, the, historically, the Jews' spiritual blessings, they ought also be of service to them in their material blessings. It's because they partner together in the Lord. Christians, whether living in the late 50s AD or the 20, 21st century today, we are to be good stewards of the resources that God himself has given us. Putting God's resources, whether energy, you know, our own life and breath, whether money or people, behind his plan to build the church. You know, thinking more practically about us as a church, um, thinking more immediately about finances, we are to support the preaching of the word of God. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, right? Those who labor in preaching, they deserve their wages. When the word is preached... The Spirit goes out and convicts people of their sin, right? God gives His people the new birth through the word of truth. Now, it sounds kind of, it feels really awkward for me as the pastor to be talking about how a worker deserves his wage. My point is not to say, hey, you know, make sure you guys are paying me. I'm thankful that this church already does that. But here we have to know, my point is, is that the reason why that is the case, the reason why God commands His churches to pay their, the people who labor in preaching and teaching and shepherding it's because of the importance of the word. It's because of the importance of the word. When the word is preached, the spirit goes out by God's design to convict people of their sin. Through the word of truth, God gives people the new birth. Thinking about evangelism, right? You want to know when evangelism happens? Well, when we as a church gather, it happens when the preaching of the word takes place. Thinking about corporate discipling, right? When the word is preached. Discipling happens, first and foremost. If you want to know where there is evangelism, check the preaching of the word. If you want to know where there is discipling, check the preaching of the word. So if you are a member of First Baptist Church, when you give financially, you put God's resources behind God's plan. That's how we support the ministry of the church here locally. We also contribute to kingdom causes internationally. All right, some of you guys you know, may not know, but uh, our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was started so that little churches like us could partner together in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the great, sort of, um, the great reason why associations came together among Baptists. Right? We believe that every single church is autonomous. Every local church is autonomous right? It's by conviction. 
according to the Bible. There's nobody over us, you know, telling us what to do. Like, you know, let's say the Roman Catholic Church, you know, they have a pope and the pope speaks authoritatively from, you know, the throne, so to speak, on matters of theology and stuff like that. We, we don't believe that. We don't believe that that's there. It's not an office of the church. We believe that every church is autonomous. So then the question is, well, how do we as a little church partner together with other, or how can we partner together with other little churches to do missions? Because it's hard oftentimes to, you know, carve out, you know, X amount of thousands of dollars to send out uh, missionaries in a way where we can support them entirely. And so the Southern Baptist Convention was formed so that we could partner together. Now, the international missions arm of the Southern Baptist Convention is called the International Mission Board, the International Mission Board. And currently, we have indeed set aside some money to give to the IMB, and together with other churches, some 40,000 other Southern Baptist churches, we support a few thousand people out on the field, out in unreached places, which is really exciting. Not only do we support other SBC, that is Southern Baptist Church uh, efforts, IMB efforts, we also have other opportunities. We just prayed about uh, you know, the church plant there in Dubai, right? We support them financially a little bit, and then we're exploring opportunities with another church planter in Kazakhstan in the city of Almaty. Of course, you guys know other opportunities here. We have the opportunity to support a short-term mission trip in the summer. And then in May, we'll be trying to raise funds from within the congregation and from outside of the congregation. And we'll have even more opportunity to steward God's money that he's given us towards this trip. But let's be clear, you know, in relation, you know, we're talking about finances here for missions, so we think it's appropriate in application to talk about finances here as we support our own efforts towards missions. Let's be clear, as we sort of roll out sort of this fundraising thing in May, let's be clear, you are certainly not required to give if you are a member of First Baptist Church. You are not required to give. Let's say, you can imagine, there's lots of different uh, situations where we might find ourselves where we just can't give over and above our regular giving, right? That's okay. Think about the person who might have to set aside money because of their children's hospitalization. Right? They're having to pay thousands of dollars for this or for that. You can think of any sorts of situations. It might be a good idea for that person to just continue giving what they've determined to give and just leave it at that. But for those of us who can give, I hope you are encouraged to give. I've been encouraged already in the few conversations that I've had with some folks about fundraising for the trip, right? I've spoken to a few people already about the trip, and even though they know that they cannot go, my intention, right, isn't to talk about financial giving, yet they eagerly mention about how they wanted to support financially. One member said, even though uh, he couldn't go, that he was going to be in prayer about giving because he wanted to. It's not pr- and it's not praying whether or not he should, It's praying about how he could free up money, the fixed income, so that he would be able to encourage the church on this trip. I mean, that's super encouraging. So encouraging to see people desiring to put God's resources behind the spread of the gospel. So as the elders begin to roll out fundraising opportunities for us as a church in the next month, be praying about how you can help contribute towards this short-term trip in the summertime. And then as we think about Giving in general, I hope God um, would help us become more like these Macedonian Christians, right? That we would so be desirous, that we would be begging for the favor, for the grace to contribute to the relief of the saints, the support of the ministry of the gospel, as our covenant describes it. 
whether here or internationally. I recognize, too, that some of us might be um, new to thinking about giving, right? We're thinking about giving for the very first time. Maybe you became a Christian recently, or you, uh, this is the first time where you might be making a wage. Let me encourage you to think carefully about the money God himself has given you, that you might be a good steward of his resources for his namesake. If you look there in your bulletin, um, I've included this little insert there about giving. By the way, if you're visiting with us, like we never, it's, it, we basically only talk about giving when it's found here in Scripture, which is honestly quite rarely. Um, so, you know, you're kind of visiting us on a, on a strange Sunday, <laughs> and we're not saying, hey, you need to give us some money. I make it really clear when I'm, when I'm talking to other people, um, you know, let's say I'm evangelizing at the gym, I say that I'm a Christian pastor. Oftentimes, a lot of people think, like, all I do when I want money is I take up an offering, and then I go use it on my house or something like that. And I honestly make it clear, like, like I'm not asking for money, guys. Uh, you come to church because we want to hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so that you, even you here today, would repent of your sins and know the salvation that's found in Jesus, forgiveness of your sins. Um, so I got to make that clear. You know, we're not saying, we're not uh, wanting you guys uh, to give money so that I can buy new sneakers or something like that. Okay, so this, so this uh, handout here says, how much should we give? This is written by a trusted friend and pastor named Jamie Dunlop. Really useful. Let me encourage you guys at uh, lunchtime, even if you're at, with a friend, you know, just break out this article and then just read it and be thinking about how you yourself, if you're thinking f- afresh about how to use your, the money that God has given you, I think you're going to be challenged by this and hopefully encouraged. Uh, so pull out that article over lunchtime. You can go ahead and read about that. If you want help thinking about financial stewardship, um, then a number of us would be glad to help you with that. So that is, in fact, point number one, partnership. That helps push the mission forward. What kind of heart is required for that? Well, it's the heart of sacrifice, the heart of sacrifice. Point number two, point number two, partnership that helps push the mission forward. Uh, That happens when Christians share a heart that honors and depends on God. A heart that honors and depends on God. Uh, Go ahead and look at 30 to 33, Romans Chapter 15, 30 to 33, he says there, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service from Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You see there that he wants them to share this heart of honoring God and depending upon Him. What does it look like? It looks like by praying together. He says that there. I appeal to you, brothers, by by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. What's the end goal of the prayers? What is the end goal of the prayers? Look at the passage right there. You should find it. You look at at 32. It is so that, so that by God's will, I may come to you in joy and be refreshed. He's just saying, pray for me so I can get there. But he asked them to pray for two specific things, two specific things. First, it is that he may be delivered in verse 31, delivered from unbelievers in Judea. We know from the book of Acts, which records some of Paul's missionary journeys, that Paul was persecuted by unbelieving Jews. And on so many occasions, just from reviewing the book of Acts, it was like almost every single chapter, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, he was persecuted for the gospel. And he went on preaching the gospel. The unbelieving Jews would persecute him, attack him, drive him out of the city. They would plot his death. And so naturally, he's praying that he would be delivered 
from the unbelieving Jews. The second thing that he asked them to pray for is that the delivery of the financial support would be accepted by Jerusalem Christians. Verse 31. You might wonder, like, why in the world would they, that need prayer? Like, who doesn't want money and help? Well, you've got to remember the context. You've got to remember the Jewish-Gentile divide, right? He's bringing Gentile money to the Jerusalem church, the Jewish church. And so potentially the Jewish church could be like, what, you, they're sharing in the spiritual blessings that, that God has given us in Abraham? No, that's not the case. Right? If they responded like that in pride, then that actually would divide the body of Jesus Christ. So when he says pray that it would be accepted, he's saying really pray that the body of Christ would be united and that would be evident in the way that the Jerusalem church would receive the blessings. Now in relation to these two prayer requests, Again, this is history, which I hope you find to be at least a little bit fascinating. In terms of these prayer requests, we wonder, were these prayer requests answered? Were these prayer requests answered? Well, thinking in terms of the money, the financial support, the answer is yes. In Acts 24, verse 17, while Acts, uh, who is written by Luke, which was written by Luke the doctor, Acts doesn't go into detail, but we have reason to think that it was. It just says that Paul brought the gift. Presumably, it was accepted, Acts 24, 17. Now, when it comes to his deliverance, what about this prayer for, God, for Paul to be delivered from the hands of unbelievers in Judea? Well, friends, that too, God had answered. But probably not in a way where everyone expected. As history plays this out, Acts tells us that he did, in fact, go to Jerusalem. I want you to turn over to the book of Acts. Just turn left to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 21. I think this is so cool. I mean, you get us read about Paul's journeys, right? And as he's going on in his journeys, right? Biblical scholars looking at dates and names and stuff like this. And, and even um, archaeological evidence, for example. They, they know when to place some of these letters, right? So we look here at what's going on in Acts. And then we can look over at Romans and see, okay, what might have been going on as he was writing some of these letters, well, we have some of the background here about what happened to Paul as he went to Jerusalem. In Acts 21, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and what happens? Look there in verse 27. Just so you can skim it. I'm going to shorten the story in my summary here. The unbelieving Jews, once again, they stir up commotion. They falsely accuse him. And then verse 30 says that they seized, right? The, the, the people seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. 31, right? They were seeking to kill him. Verse 32, we know that the Jews were beating him. And then they arrested him and bound him with chains. Now, you might think that doesn't sound like his prayers were answered there. Delivered from the hands of unbelievers in Judea. But friends, actually, his prayers were answered. It was his arrest by the authorities that provided safety from the Jews. Isn't that interesting? The Jews are beating him up, right? They're seeking to kill him. The Roman authorities come and they say, hold on here. This is too much commotion. I'm going to arrest you. And, and bring you into prison. Now, we're going to bind you in chains. And that actually secures safe passage for him. Isn't that fascinating? And you know where the rest of, you know what the rest of Acts records? The rest of Acts simply records Paul's journey to where? To Rome. He's saying, pray that I would go to Rome. Pray that I would be delivered from them, that I might see you. And that's exactly what happens even though it happens through beatings and plots to kill him and arrest and being bound in chains. And it is while Paul is under arrest in Jerusalem that he faces trial, and as a Roman citizen, he says, hold up, I'm a Roman citizen, therefore I get to appeal to the highest court, 
I get to appeal to Caesar, the ruler of the entire Roman Empire, and you can't touch me now. And eventually he makes passage to Rome. While he is still under arrest, he actually makes it there safely. It's interesting, right? His prayers are answered. Their prayers are answered. He was delivered. In Acts chapter 28, verse 30, it says there that when he gets to Rome, right, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Romans 16, 32, it was answered. By God's will, he came to them in joy and was refreshed in their presence. At this point in time, as Paul asks them to join him in praying, here's a man, right, who depends on God and his will, and he wants the Christians to do the same, and in so doing, honor God and depend on him. In wanting them to honor God and depend upon him, Paul wanted them to be praying that not Paul's will be done, not their will be done, but God's will be done. That's why it's mentioned there in verse 32. That's what it's about, not Paul's will. I mean, notice that Paul did not ask them to pray that no one would lay a hand on him or that he would come out without any stress in his life and not a hair on his head would be hurt. I feel like sometimes that's our prayer request in terms of how we might understand suffering for the gospel. You know, we might not be hurt or a hair on our head might not be hurt. I mean, that kind of prayer request wouldn't have even made sense to the Apostle Paul. Jesus had already told him just how much he would suffer for Christ's name in Acts chapter 9. We know that Paul joyfully accepted the sufferings on behalf of Jesus Christ. So do not think that safety was Paul's number one priority in prayer request. That would be absolutely false. It is not as if physical safety is God's perfect will for his people in this sinful world why we all will face death. If there are verses in Scripture that sum up Paul's aim and goal and priority and prayer request, you know, we could take Paul, I mean, we could take Philippians chapter 1, chapter, or verses 20 to 21, it's as good as any. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Thinking historically, too, you know what's, you know what's fascinating is that he's writing this in Rome while he's under arrest. He knows that he's probably going to be heading towards death. And in fact, he was, in fact, martyred for the Christian faith. But that's his aim there. It's not safety, ultimately. He doesn't say, pray with me that not a hair of my head will be hurt. He just says, pray that the mission will be completed, that I'll be able to get to you and encourage you, even despite the sufferings that I have to go through. He prays and desires that these Christians... Pray that God's will be done for his honor and glory. This is why he writes there, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says there in verse 30. This is about Christ. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to pray for me. When he says there, love of the Spirit, I don't think he thinks about the individual's love of the Holy Spirit. I think, he's t- I think he means here by the love poured out by the Spirit into our hearts that evidences itself in a love for Jesus and his people. What undergirds these prayer requests is that Christ would be honored and that God's plan of salvation would be accomplished. Specifically, that the gospel would be taken up to the ends of the earth and that Christ's church would be built up. He asks them, join with me in prayers. And he desires that they have a heart that honors God and depends upon him. In terms of application... 
Again, it's not hard to imagine that the Roman Christians might have been excited to partner with Paul in his mission. He's the tip of the spear, so to speak. And he's calling for partnership. Well, church, we too have a desire that this kind of partnership would happen here in this church. Sharing in pushing the mission forward according to God's will for us as a church, as revealed in Scripture, for the honor of Jesus. One huge opportunity we have to partner together is in our evening service. Specifically, you know, he's talking about partnering in prayer, so we're going to talk about partnering in prayer. One opportunity we have to partner together is in our evening service, where we pray for one another specifically in our efforts to love our non-Christian friends, where we hope to talk to them about the Savior. And the prayer time is one awesome way that we as a church can foster this type of partnership in the gospel, where we share the same heart of honoring God and depending upon Him, right? So, so um, you know, well, we're sharing prayer requests on a Sunday night about, hey, you know, I've, I've got an opportunity to meet this person, and I'm talking to them about the gospel, right? In those moments, we pray together that God's will will be done as He moves to save sinners by His grace in Christ, and He uses us as His messengers, we pray that we would have opportunities and that we would take advantage of them, that we would be active in loving others with the gospel, right? That our eyes would be open to the most important things while we're interacting with one another. We pray together as a body. We pray for boldness, that we would speak the gospel and that we would combat the fear of man. We pray for faithfulness and follow. We pray that God, by His Spirit, would use the Word to bring people to repentance and faith. We pray all of that, as Paul says, by our Lord Jesus Christ. And on account of the love of God that's been poured into our, into our hearts by the Spirit, love for Jesus and one another. So we gather in our evening service. It only happens once a month, the first Sunday, uh, first Sunday evening of the month. We gather to pray for individuals corporately in our evening service. We pray for one another as we bring one another before the throne of God. And we pray saying, Amen. You know what that means? It means, yes, indeed. It means, truly, let it be. And he says that there in verse 33, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Truly, truly, may it be so according to God's will. Which is why, like, when we pray, right, it's not just me leading a prayer. So in my pastoral prayer, I'm praying, praying, God, we pray such and such. That's what we encourage those who lead the service. Like, when he prays, Ideally, any service leader will be praying, we pray such and such because they are leading us in prayer. We don't sit here and pray, I pray as if it's all my own personal devotions. No, whoever prays, let's say on Sunday evening, they're leading all of us in prayer. And so when we all say, amen, we are saying, yes, God, may it be so according to your will. Oftentimes people can think about prayer as just this individual thing or Sunday evening. It's, like, oh, it's just something we do again. It's part of our schedule that we've been. No, we together corporately, we gather together and go before the very throne of grace. And even if one individual leaves us, leads us in prayer for, let's say, Caesar as he's evangelizing his friend, he's leading us to do that. And so when we say amen, we say that all together in one voice. May it be so by the will of God, all for his glory. All of that. There's so much theology wrapped up in corporate prayer. So, friends, I hope that you take advantage of this. this is, again, is a huge opportunity we have to partner together so that God's will would be done. Praying that God's will would be done. I've been encouraged that our evening service attendance has definitely been growing. I pray that it is evidence of the congregation's desire to learn how to pray that God's, God would be honored and that we would learn to trust in Him. 
that we would learn to trust in him to do exactly what he has promised, to build his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you, make time, carve out time, 5.30, first Sunday of every month. Join us as we learn to pray about the temporal in light of the eternal and the physical in light of the spiritual. So as we close up chapter uh, point number two, we move now to point number three. And to just summarize once again, partnership to push forward in our Christian mission requires point number one, a heart of sacrifice. It's all about Jesus. Point number two, a heart that honors and depends on God, that it is God's will. We pray that that would be done. Point number three, a heart of brotherly love, a heart of brotherly love. Paul affirms his partnership with them, as we're going to see, because they are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Look there at 16 verses 1 to 16. Our final section there, if you just sort of skim that, the final section of our passage is all about partnership in the family of Jesus Christ. In this section, Paul officially enters into his conclusion and he greets many there in the Roman church. If you look and scan it, you'll see that there is just greeting after greeting. And now when many Christians read this, they can sort of be tempted to get overwhelmed with all the different names. But what is most important is the fact that Paul sees all of these people as his co-workers in the gospel, right? One family in the Lord. Listen to how he describes these folks, and you'll see that these descriptions are all about their service to, to Christ. If you look there in verses 1 and 2, he starts commending a gal named Phoebe to the Roman Christians. Go ahead and look there. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron that is a helper of many and of myself as well. Scholars believe that this Phoebe was the one who delivered the letter to the Roman Christians. You see there that she fulfills this, seems to uh, fulfill this official position of deacon, deaconess of the church at Sancria, which is Corinth. So Paul, most likely, I mean, people think that he's writing in Corinth. And so Phoebe is the one who takes the letter and is going to deliver it to the Romans. Uh, and you see what a help she has been, right? He's commending her as an encouragement. He says he's been such a huge help, a patron towards many, many people and myself included. After commending Phoebe, Paul then greets all these people in the church of Rome. Look how he describes them as sharing and serving the same Lord. He describes them as sharing and serving the same Lord. You look there, numerous mentions to those who are in the Lord. In other words, they share the same Lord, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Phoebe, verse 2, is in the Lord. You see there that Prisca and Aquila, we see them in the book of Acts. They are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus There are other references to Christ there in verse 7, in verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13. Not only do they share the same Lord, but they serve the same Lord. And so they're also called fellow workers. It means that they're involved in the same kinds of work of strengthening the church. Once again, Prisca and Aquila are mentioned. We see them evangelizing uh, in the book of Acts. In verse 9, Urbanus is another fellow worker in Jesus Christ. And they even have those who suffer similarly for Jesus Christ. Verse 7 calls them fellow prisoners, those who are suffering with Paul for the gospel. Here they share the same Lord and they serve the same Lord, even at the expense of suffering. It is a cost and blessing that Paul was very familiar with. You can imagine the Roman Christians receiving this letter and being encouraged in the faith. 
they too were laboring for Christ and even being persecuted for their faith, possibly by the very authorities in the land. And now they have this letter from the apostle laying out the fundamentals of the gospel and encouraging them in it. Clearly, they were pushing forward the mission to make Christ's name known. And together, they could do it better as fellow workers, fellow sufferers, fellow brothers and sisters, sharing the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is interesting here as we wrap up, what's interesting is that, you know, Paul definitely made it to Rome. We know that for a fact. But Jesus himself in the book of Acts said, you must stand before the authorities and testify to his name. The very authorities that he appealed to, he ended up preaching the gospel to. People, I mean, you, you see there, the, the, this list of folks there in verse 10. You see the names of Aristobulus. He says, greet, uh, in verse 10, he says, Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. And then in verse 11, he says, Greet the family of Narcissus. What's fascinating is that these, most likely, I mean, there's no, there's no solid 100% evidence, but um, scholars do think that these were um, people in official positions of leadership, wielding great power. And in their families, they had Christians, probably slaves, probably ministering to other people in high places, all on account of Jesus Christ. Now, even though Jesus said that Paul would indeed stand before the authorities and minister according to his name, he never promised that Paul would actually make it to Spain. But tradition says, tradition says in Christian history, there are people who surmise in the fourth century that Paul actually did make it to Spain. Again, we don't know. The Bible doesn't comment, but that's what tradition says. Regardless if he made it there or not, we know that God is faithful. Just as Christ promised that he would use Paul to the fame of his great name, so he is using the church for the fame of his great name. Thank God for Christian partnership. Thank God that God did indeed bring Paul to Rome, where he, as Acts 28 says, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Again, whether he did make it there to Spain or not, we know that the mission was pushed forward by the will of God as Paul joined with other Christians who shared the same heart of sacrifice, the same heart that honored and depended upon God, and the same heart of brotherhood in Jesus Christ, sharing and serving Christ no matter the cost. So we pray that we as a church, as First Baptist Church, would have hearts of the same. And so continue the mission here to bring the gospel to our neighbors and partnering with others around the world to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together.